warning you in advance. I've got some kind of either allergy or something, so I'm, I'll probably be coughing. Hopefully the Lord will restrain it for your sake. Uh, so, but if that's happening, I hope you won't be distracted. Know that I'm not distracted by it. I don't even know how much I'm coughing because it's been constant since Tuesday. So it'll just happen kind of instinctively if it does. Well, let's get started and pray. I want to say happy Mother's Day to all the moms. What a celebration of the Lord's grace in our lives through you. So let's pray. Well, Father, we, we bless the mothers and we thank you for their role in our lives, the way that you've used um, them to shape us, to form us, Lord, particularly for the mothers in this room, as those who have put their trust in you, we thank you, Lord, that they have known you, the greatest of all blessings, Lord, that they are themselves children of God, and that you have allowed them to know you so that they can now influence their children, whether their children all know you or Any of them know you, Lord, you have given them influence and grace and the power of prayer. So we pray that you would encourage them today and strengthen them for the continued task, Lord, no matter what season they're in, whether the children are still in the house or beyond those years. Lord, we pray for fresh grace for every mother here. And we pray that this morning as we look into your word and study your very character, that you would be attendant by your spirit we know that you are omnipresent, but Lord, there, there are promises in your word that you will be here when your word is opened with special grace, special gifts in hand, ready to dispense them for the good and growth of your people. So we trust this time to you, and we ask that you would help us to think and to feel and to, uh, and to conceive of you in the way in which you have desired to be known. We don't want to accidentally make idols this morning. We want to investigate and explore the glory of the real, one, true, and living God. So show us, Lord, something of your glory as we look into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to welcome all of you again to to the Doctrinal Essentials class. We're going to be getting into our first installment on the doctrine of God this morning. So, uh, you know, I realized about halfway through this week that it was a hopeless endeavor to try to fit the doctrine of God into one 40-minute session. You might be thinking, why did it take you half a week to figure that out? Uh, and so we're, I've asked for an extension from the, the other guys on the team and just said, can we extend the class a little bit longer and take two or three on the doctrine of God so that we can spread it out and deal with some different issues. So we're going to break our study of the doctrine of God into three categories of attributes. There are not clean lines around these categories. These are simply there so that we can study them with some kind of teaching method. And so so here they are. We're going to talk about God's attributes of goodness. That would be kind of the moral characteristics of God, Um, the way that he relates to humanity, Issues of kindness and justice and love and, and many others. And then we're going to look, uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the knowledge of God and the attributes of God's wisdom and his omniscience. And then we'll look at the attributes of God's power, considering his sovereignty, his will, his self-existence, his omnipotence, and, and the rest. 
the primary aim of every passage in the Bible is to tell us what God is like. No matter what the passage is, the primary thing that we're supposed to take away from God's Word in any chapter of the Bible that you're reading devotionally in the morning is, Lord, show me what you're like. Show me who you are. And therefore, the Bible is full of theology. Theology, again, is not a bad word. It's a very good word. Ology is just what you put at the end. It just means the study of. So biology is the study of life, right? Theology is the study of God. So the Bible is God coming to us in his word and revealing himself so that we might know him. Now, there are going to be places, as we're reading in the Bible, maybe we've experienced this, where we're going to discover things about God that are initially unsettling. Because there are similarities between God and ourselves, and the similarities exist because we were made in his image, Genesis 1. So there are going to be certain things that when we read the Bible and we see God doing that or saying that, we immediately feel that is so right and wonderful that God does that because it's connecting with that aspect in which we've been made in his image. But there are also discontinuities. I mean, you could ask the Bible the same question in two different ways. You could say, who... Who is like God? And the Bible in one sense could say you are because you were made in his image. And in the next sentence, you could ask the same question to the Bible and the Bible would say no one is like God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so there are discontinuities. There are going to be times when we look into God's word and we see him doing something or saying something that crosses kind of instincts that we feel in our own, in our own lives. And so at that point, it can be tempting to remake God, to bend those texts, or just to keep passing over them, kind of awkwardly just walk by without looking because we're not comfortable with what God just said about himself or revealed about his actions in history. So we have to be really careful of doing theology by means of intuition. If we do theology by means of intuition, we are on a quick path to idolatry because we're going to unwittingly, accidentally, as it were, make God to be something comfortable for us. He is not safe, and we cannot domesticate God. He is holy. He is other than we are. He is transcendent. And so we want to be careful with that. Doing theology, this is in your outline, by checking God's actions and word against our intuitions. So questions like, as we read this passage, would God really afflict a righteous follower like Job with trials like these? When we ask that question, it seems like at that point, we are begin to subtly want to say, I don't think that God could do that because that just doesn't register with me. That doesn't resonate with me. <coughs> Did God really harden Pharaoh's heart? This is a big one in contemporary days right here. Would the father really pour out wrath on his son? So we want to, we want to embrace God's word because God is who he is. He comes to us in scripture to reveal himself, what he's like, who he is. And so he is not, he is not trying to find out if we'll vote for him, if we will agree, if we'll sign off on his attributes. Uh, God does not struggle with the fear of man. And so when he comes to us in scripture, he says, this is who I am. And he is unapologetic in the presentation of his own glory, even in ways that startle us, astonish us, and even throw us back on our heels at times. So to study God's word in humble, trusting submission 
means we study with a desire to know the God who stands behind these texts and to take him on his own terms. It's not our place to analyze God, to evaluate him as a deity candidate or a deity prospect. When we do that kind of thing, our theology actually gets nowhere because God doesn't play along. Uh, The texts that would otherwise be windows become walls. God is not interested in being analyzed. He's interested in being worshipped and revered and honored as God. And so when we look at his word, we want to come with reverence and say, God, reveal yourself, whatever that looks like, and give us humility to embrace it and know you are good, you are wise, you are holy, and to be worshipers. Look at this quote from Donald MacLeod. (coughs) God is not simply a great sight, the object of speculative curiosity. The revelation of his glory and the whole theological process which legitimately follows from it is holy ground. We cannot stand as superiors over God or his word. We may not coldly or detachedly analyze and collate the great self-revealing deeds and utterances of Jehovah. We may not theologize without emotion and commitment. The doctrine must thrill and exhilarate. It must humble and cast down. Theology has lost its way and indeed its very soul. If it cannot say with John, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, we live in a deeply spiritualized culture, which is to say that God talk is in vogue. It's fashionable to talk about God. So you could have uh, Oprah Winfrey, which which would kind of be the kind of new age mystic notions in, in today today's thinking about God, and you could have Franklin Graham, which would be an evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing Christian. You could have John Travolta. You could have Glenn Beck, who's a Mormon. And they could all begin to talk about God, and they would all be fine with talking about God. The God concept is not inherently controversial. It's when we begin to get specific about who God is that the differences begin to emerge between those three and others who come to the table to talk about God. So, how do we think in a way that that shows us that this is the biblical God, that we're clarifying that this God about whom we're speaking is none other than than Yahweh, the God in, in Scripture? You know, there's a commercial, maybe you've seen it, where a guy goes and he walks into this big white room and he's going, he's shopping for a vehicle. And there are all these vehicles hanging from, from these racks. And he begins to, he already has a vehicle in mind. He has the vehicle that he wants to walk away with in his mind. And all he has to do is just to spell out the specifics. And as soon as he says, truck, all the cars slide out, right? And there are these thousands of trucks just hanging, dangling on these racks. And then he says black, and out go all the multicolored cars, and there's just black trucks. And then he's adding, and every time he adds, fewer vehicles are there. And then he says power windows, and out go all the ones where you crank them down. He says 1995, and out go all the other years and models. He says Ford, out go all the Dodges and Toyotas. 
and then, and then he says gun rack, and he adds whatever else it is that he exactly wants until there's one truck left, and that's the truck that he had in his mind when he began shopping in the first place. He had a concept of the truck. Now he's added enough specifics to know this is the truck that I wanted. In the same way, we can begin our talk about God in a way that everyone seems to agree. You know, you could talk, let's say I'm, I'm the new age guy, and you could begin to talk with me about God, and you could say God is good, and I could say all the time. I could say hey, amen to that. He absolutely is good. And, and then you say, no, well, no, I'm talking about a God of love. And I say, well, yeah. Yeah, what else would he be? I mean, God of love, yeah. No, I'm talking about a God who is powerful. Yes, he's powerful. Well, maybe this will clarify the God that I'm talking about made the world. Sure he did. And then at this point, I'm beginning to say, this can't be a coincidence. I think we're actually talking about the same God. Now, how do you talk, how do you advance the conversation to a place where it's clear what God identity is in your mind? Where you add enough specifics to where there are no other options in the room except the one biblical God. One way you could do it is you could say, I'm talking about the triune God. And I could say, what do you mean by that? And you could, you could cite the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Three persons are in the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and equal in glory. Jesus Christ Equally eternal with God the Father. Holy Spirit, equally eternal. Equal in power, equal in glory. That's the triune God. And then you focus even more in on the second person of the Trinity in particular. And you say, he is the exact representation of the Godhead. He is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. He is the incarnate Son. Fully man and fully God who died on the cross and rose again. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting to clarity and non-God options are sliding fast out of the way until there we are standing in the presence of the one true living God. And so the, the doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely vital. To believe that the Father is God and not the Son or the Son is God and not the Father, is not to make a slight error in theology. The reason the doctrine of the Trinity is indispensable, it could be said simply this way. There is no other God but the triune God. He is the only God option. He is the only God out there, the only God to be known. There are no other deity candidates. So in other words, to the Jehovah's Witness who denies the, the deity of Jesus Christ. Our response isn't, oh, oh, so you don't take Jesus as God. Well, at least you get the Father. You know, it's your loss, because having the Son would be so much better. But at least you have the Father. No. No, he that hath not the Son hath not the Father as well. And so it is a triune God that's the only one there is, and therefore the Trinity is absolutely critical for us to have in our minds when we're thinking of God. 
So for the remainder of our time, now I'm not going to get into biblical arguments for the Trinity. If you want to investigate and explore that, I think the church, we've been taught a lot on that. Matter of fact, in this Peter, first Peter series, Pastor Peter did a message in the first chapter that unfolded the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. So you can go back and get that. You can go down to the book nook. We have two books available, one by James White and one by Bruce Ware. If they run out of them, send an email to Evan, get it ordered, and, and read and study for your benefit. <coughs> so for the remainder of our time, we're going to consider some of what we might call the ethical attributes or the moral attributes of God. All of God's attributes are glorious. They are beautiful. They are positive. They are edifying for us to know them. But they have teeth in them too. Um, when we talk about the goodness of God and the love of God, it, we shouldn't necessarily immediately breathe a sigh as though that means the world is safe in the presence of God because God is good or because God is loving. God's goodness and God's love are holy goodness and holy love. And so C.S. Lewis said, for example, the pure in heart shall see God. His comment on that verse was, for they are the only ones who will want to. Those who have not been purified by virtue of the blood of Christ will call for the mountains to fall on them in the presence of a good and loving God. That good and loving God is holy in all of his ways, even in his goodness. There are expressions of God's goodness, and that's what we're really thinking about this morning, is that goodness is a broad theological category. It's a big enough umbrella for for God's goodness to be expressed in justice, in compassion, in love, in forbearance, in a multitude of different kinds of ways, in jealousy. So we're going to look at God's goodness and God's love as kind of big headings and related to both of those, God's goodness in a fallen world is going to express itself in justice, which is bad news for those who rebel against God. God's love, which seems like you know, the most positive of all of God's attributes, but God's love in a fallen world expresses itself in jealousy for those whom he has made. So we're going to consider some of these things as we move along. The goodness of God. How is God good? To whom is God good? God is good to his people. The most prominent way that we see God's goodness displayed in Scripture is the way he cares and provides for his covenant people. This verse from Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. One of my favorite psalms. How many psalm lovers do we have here? One of my favorite psalms, and you'll all know this psalm and love this psalm, is Psalm 103. I think if Psalm 103 is not a meditation on the goodness of God to his people, I don't know what in the world it is. It is a meditation, a robust meditation on God's goodness. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I love this because this verse sometimes can be taken to be the kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps and bless God. (coughs) Excuse me. Command your soul to praise the Lord. But how does David begin to kick his soul into gear to bless God? What he does is he remembers God's goodness. He begins to list off one after another things that God has done in God's kindness and benevolence to him. Forget not all his benefits. 
who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. These are covenant blessings. These are blessings specifically for God's own people. If we do not know Christ, if we've not turned from sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ, we don't know what this verse means experientially. Once we put our faith in Christ and we've been brought into God's family, his covenant relationship, now we know what it feels like to have our sins forgiven, right? These are, these are the blessings and the goodness of God. Now, we'll go on and talk about more of God's goodness in the form of God's love to his people when we get to the doctrine of God's love. But we need to, I think, factor in that God is not becoming good to us when we put our faith in Jesus. Goodness precedes our faith and repentance. Goodness leads to our faith and repentance. It is God's, God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So goodness began before we ever believed. So God's mercy meets us, comes to us. How many of us, our experience is that before we came to know Christ, we experienced blessings that we knew were from God. God was coming to us inclining to us, drawing himself to us. That was God's goodness. He wasn't waiting, saying, come on, I'm ready to bless you if you'll just hurry up and believe. No, it's his goodness that begins to, it's his goodness that draws us to faith. It's his goodness that sends the Holy Spirit so that he quickens life in us. We hear the word of the gospel and suddenly we understand it. Why? Because God is good because he is merciful and he allowed us to see what otherwise we never would have seen, never would have understood God's grace in salvation had it not been for God's prior goodness before we ever believed. And his goodness doesn't end when we believe. It's not like the, you know, it's all over. God has just blessed us and said, yeah, there's the gift, the gift of salvation. Take it, you know, see in heaven. Um, there. God's goodness chases us. Goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. And so God's goodness is the banner under which we live the whole of the Christian life. And God's goodness is expressed in countless ways. Not not only in these primary ways of, of every spiritual blessing, blessings that have eternal rollover, but but temporal blessings. God coming and providing. You wouldn't even be here this morning. You wouldn't have arrived safely if it wasn't for the fact that God is good. God has been good to you already this morning. He is good to us. He blesses us. Augustine said, anything this side of hell is grace. What a perspective. I think one of the reasons Miss Verla probably has so much characteristic joy is because she's constantly exercising the muscles of thankfulness. And, and you've experienced that. I've experienced that by cards. She's just, she just sends cards all across the church. And what does it take to write that card? It takes Ms. Verla sitting down somewhere 
I'd love to see a picture of Miss Verla just sitting at her, her kitchen table with millions of cards, <laughs> running out of ink, grabbing another pen, and just beginning to think, now, Lord, what would bless Matt? What would bless Tammy? And just beginning to think of God's grace in her life, in other people's lives, giving us wisdom, telling us how she's praying for us. Contentment is on the rise when we think about God's goodness. On the other hand, when we obsess about the hardships in our lives, we begin to experience kind of this sullen, depressed, discouraged feeling. But we need to be God's people who meditate on his goodness. And therefore, it produces joy that is welling up and overtopping into cards and blessing and thinking of others and prayers. This doctrine has a very practical touch point for our lives. God is good to his people, <coughs> but his goodness is not restricted to his people. Psalm 73 talks about God being good to Israel, to the covenant people of God. But Psalm 145 tells us the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. This all, incidentally, I don't believe is just humanity. I think it is totally inclusive. Every Every plant, every animal, every insect looks to the benevolent creator to feed it moment by moment. Today, grass will grow because God is good. This is our, this is our great, powerful God. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. I love that image of God opening his hands to his created world and feeding people and being a blessing to his people. But what about those who never turn to Christ in faith? How is God's goodness expressed to them? Look at Acts 14. (coughs) In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now, if you go back and you read the context of Acts 14, the hearts, the your hearts that God is satisfying are Zeus worshipers. Matter of fact, they're not, matter of fact, they're worshiping Barnabas and Paul. They're calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes and they're beginning to want to offer sacrifices. As a matter of fact, the very next verse after Paul clarifies, no, it's God who is the creator of all. We are nothing. The very next verse after he's clarified this, it says that they were basically itching to offer sacrifices even while this was being said. God is providing, he's feeding Zeus worshipers. He's sustaining them. He's giving them food, fruitful seasons, and gladness. Unbelievers 
those who are card-carrying pagans, atheists, they laugh with their families at night because God is good. They enjoy Mother's Day because God is benevolent, because he is kind. The atheist farmer doesn't give God thanks, but his crops are growing at night because God is good. Despite that, benevolence of God continues to pour out throughout his world. God is a God of kindness and goodness. In fact, the bountiful goodness of God will compound that atheist farmer's guilt before God on the day of judgment because he has spurned the kindness of God despite God's goodness to him. It's not like he can rap on the door of heaven and say, you never were kind to me. No wonder I didn't turn to you. No. Oh no. Your crops grew. You laughed in the evening with your family. You probably had a Bible. You probably heard the good news, at least in our culture. There are so many blessings. God's blessing runs throughout the world. Well, that that leads us to the question of goodness and justice. Is it good that God is just? One of the questions that's often posed here is, how could a good God create a hell? (coughs) Often the existence of hell is taken as an argument against the goodness or the love of God. Does hell prove that God is not good? Hell, we might say, when you think of the attributes of God and what hell displays, probably the first one that comes to mind, at least for me, is the justice of God. Hell is an expression of the justice of God, much like the state penitentiary is an expression of the justice of the state or the justice of the country, right? Hell is an expression of God's justice. But the judgment of the wicked can also be seen as an expression of God's goodness, can it not? Look at 2 Thessalonians. (coughs) This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. How is this relief to God's people coming? Relief to God's people, affliction to the wicked, The affliction of the wicked is God's goodness to his people. It's God's relief to his persecuted people. Go on. Grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when, here's when the relief comes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We can, we can look at Revelation 20, in which there's this millennial period, however you define that, but there's this millennial period, and after that millennial period, Satan is released from the pit, and out he comes, guns blazing, and he's, he's inciting warfare against the Most High God. And millions, it seems, join him in seeking to topple the throne of God. And he deceives the nations. 
But God puts down that rebellion. And it's described in Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. Wow. And the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur (coughs) where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now when the church experiences this verse in real history, I believe there will be a sigh heard round the world. It will be, ah, the Lord is good. I believe God's people will respond to this putting away of Satan and evil with the serpent has been crushed, the promises fulfilled, the Lord is good. This is an expression of the goodness of God relieving the suffering of his people. So the, the fact that God is good all the time doesn't mean that God is nice all the time. Uh, God is holy and righteous all the time. God's goodness is really there. But a good God at the end of the day is not nice to the wicked. He's not nice to those who spurn his name. So far from being an argument against God's goodness, the punishment of evil is an argument for it. The existence of hell is an argument for the goodness of God. In a fallen world, God's goodness will express itself not only in bounty and blessing, but in doing justice and overcoming evil. All right, let's talk about the love of God. The attribute of God's love is probably the best known of all his attributes. Everyone knows God is love. It's, it's central. It's a central tenet of the Christian faith. It's the heart of the gospel, the center of the center. Probably many of us, the first song we ever sang growing up in church is Jesus loves me, this I know. Yes, Jesus loves me. We sung that song. It's precious to us. Maybe the first verse that we memorized is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is an absolutely precious doctrine. Whom does God love and how does God express that love? (coughs) As with goodness, God's love is expressed in many ways and with varying intensity. God's love for himself. First of all, God didn't create the world because he needed someone to love. It's not like, you know, God has all this infinite love and it's just pent up inside of him. He's got no one to give it to. So, Genesis 1 happens. No, God, before Genesis 1, lived in a perfect relationship of love in the Trinity. The Father loving the Son from eternity. The Son perfectly loving, omnipotently, infinitely, inexhaustibly loving the Father. The Spirit honoring and glorifying the Son and the Son, the Spirit, just round and round it goes for ages. God's love is his experience in triune fellowship. His love wasn't looking for an outlet. He had perfect love as his eternal experience. 
God made us and God made the created world to invite us into the already going celebration of omnipotent love that was the triune relationship. God invited us to the party of his love so that we might experience the overflow, the overtopping power of his love. (coughs) He didn't need to create in order to love. The greatest love in all of creation, this may come as a surprise, is God's love for God. God loves his own glory. Now this may seem self-centered to us because for us it's wrong to make ourselves the center of the universe, right? But is it wrong for God to make himself the center of the universe? God is the center of the universe. We are not and therefore when God is self-loving, he is God-centered. He is what we all are called to be. God, we talked last week about God's law. God's law is an expression of his own character. So in a sense, if we ask the question, does God keep the law? It's almost a silly question. The law is an expression of who God is. God's character is that way. God keeps the law, if you will, because his nature, he is the embodiment of his law. And so when God's law says to us, (coughs) love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, God loves himself with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. It is right for God to love his glory above all things. Matter of fact, if God loved our glory or valued us more than himself, he would be an idolater. He would be setting before God something that is not God, something that is not ultimate and glorious in the universe. If God's answer to the question, what is the most valuable being in the universe, the most beautiful, glory-receiving creature in the universe, being in the universe. If God's answer to that question was, you are, humanity is, he would be lying. God is preeminent. He is glorious. And he unapologetically celebrates his own glory. He loves his own glory. Our salvation, when it's consummated, finds us there in the presence of God, swept up into the celebration of God's love for his glory. Look at these words from Jesus. (coughs) Father, I desire that they also, that is the, the people that you've given to me, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. If you go back and you read Moses' ultimate prayer, there's this big moment where Moses is, if you will, audacious enough to say, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Jesus' biggest most ultimate prayer 
is here in John 17. And you know what he's praying? He's saying, Lord, show them the glory you've given to me. Show them the way you have glorified me. Dazzle them. Let them see the love that you've given to me, the love that you have for me. This is going to be an absolutely explosive experience. You ever been somewhere, maybe a wedding, a rehearsal dinner, where one person honors another? And that person draws into that moment so much history, so much personal thought and expression, and maybe they wax poetic and they have a command of the language, and you're, you're, just, in, you're just wrapped. I remember at uh, Angel, Angel's rehearsal the night before, and Stephen Johnson, what he shared about his sister, the way he praised and honored the relationship that he has with his sister, I, I think everyone in the room was in tears. Now, that's one human being honoring another human being. Imagine, we're in heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, raises his glass to the Father. And we're all there. And an overflow of honor from the second person of the Trinity to the first person of the Trinity radiates through all of God's created world. That's going to be the heaven of heavens. The love of God for God and we're swept up into that experience. It's going to be amazing. (coughs) But we're not just spectators of God's love for God. We are recipients recipients of God's love for us. We have become, by virtue of God's kindness, beloved children of God. Isn't that what John writes in 1 John? Behold, what manner of love, what manner, what kind of love that we, of all people, should be called children of God. You can feel the sense of wonder and amazement in John. Of course the Father loves the Son, Of course the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father. Of course, they're perfect. Their love is perfect. But how could it be, John asks, that the Father would love me? How could, wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, that God the Father, perfect, would love a sinner like me. Behold, what manner of love. How has God displayed this love? Romans 5, 8 tells us, God commended his love, displayed his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the cross, in the cross, the Father makes a world-shaking proclamation of his love for you. If you've turned to Christ in faith, you've become a part of God's people, that, that proclamation should drive your life forward. I think when we think about and obsess about the circumstances and hardships of our lives and we look for God's love, we look to measure God's love based on our circumstances, we find ourselves spiraling downward in discouragement, despair. Maybe there's something I'm not doing that I need to... 
re-ingratiate myself to God, reacquire favor with God. God says, no, look, measure my love this way. I've given you a measurement. Measure my love by looking at the cross. I sent my son. He absorbed the full payment for your sins. He took my wrath on him so that you might be assured of grace and assured of my love. John Stott writes, God's love is wonderful beyond comprehension. God could quite justly have abandoned us to our fate. It is what we deserved, but he did not. Because he loved us, he came after us in Christ. He pursued us even to the desolate anguish of the cross (coughs) where he bore our sin, guilt, judgment, and death. It takes a hard and stony heart to remain unmoved by love like that. It is more than love. Its proper name is grace, which is love to the undeserved. So God's love, not our loveliness, is not our loveliness is the basis of our being chosen for salvation. It is what sent Jesus to the cross. God's love is also tenacious, pursuing, and it is protecting. Which takes us to our last point, love and jealousy. Does perfect love <coughs> get jealous? In a fallen world, love proves itself true by taking the form of jealousy and protection when necessary. Listen to what God says in Exodus 34. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods, and he goes from there. John Calvin writes, the Lord very frequently addresses us in the character of a husband as he performs all the offices of a true and faithful husband. So he requires love and chastity from us. As the purer and chaster the husband is, the more grievously he is offended when he sees his wife inclining to a rival. So the Lord, who has betrothed us to himself, declares that he burns with the hottest jealousy whenever neglecting the purity of his holy marriage. We defile ourselves with abominable lusts. It is good that God loves us in this way. God comes after us. When, when I go after idols and besetting sins and I chase them, it is so good that God, God's love doesn't just kind of run into a corner and cry. He comes running after me. He girds up his robe. He breaks down the door. And he does that in many, many different ways. And he will pull me. He might even tear me out of the jaws of my sin. Why? Because he's a control freak? No, because he loves me. And he knows that sin's love is a series of one-night stands that will leave me covered in shame and destroyed. And he says, I will not have that. I love you too much. I'm coming to get you. That's God's jealous love. I've come to love this aspect of God's goodness. I praise God that there are seasons in my life where his love was drawing and wooing. And then there are seasons in my life where in love... He snatched me out of the hands of my idols. And that's God's love. And his love is jealous. 
It is holy. It has a claim on us. We've been twice bought. We were made by him and we were redeemed by him. We are twice claimed by God. We belong to him. In a fallen world, love proves itself true by taking the form of jealousy and protection when necessary. Let's pray. (coughs) God, we thank you for your goodness. Your goodness knows no end. We thank you for all the expressions of your goodness this morning that we've talked about, which we have, as your people, experienced. Probably every Christian in this room has experienced every manifestation of your goodness that we've talked about this morning, and we haven't begun to scratch the surface. Lord, indeed, we will for eternity explore the infinite expanses of your goodness and your mercy. Maybe there will just be one attribute every 10,000 years that we linger on and worship around. So settle this truth in our hearts in a way that creates joy, Miss Verla-like thankfulness. Hearts that are filled with gladness because God has been good to us. And Lord, even though we have difficulties in our lives, we can say, because we meditate on your goodness, Truly, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a good inheritance. The Lord is my portion. I will not be put to shame. Lord, you are so good. May this goodness change our lives. May it change our perspectives. May it change the way we relate to the world. Give us the kind of joy that is infectious because you are good to us. Amen. All right, we'll see you next.